Good morning. So I have a 10-year-old daughter. take a while. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, she's 10. So, um, you know, she doesn't really need me to read her stories anymore. But I remember what that was like. Red fish, two fish. No, that's wrong. One fish, two fish. Oh, man, I blew the whole line. Let's start over. Um, how about this one? In an old house in Paris, all covered with vines. We live 12 little girls in two straight lines. Okay, that's a little better. Yeah. So you're thinking, why is he going here? Well, we're going to have a story today. Um, the passage we're going to look at today is John 4. We're going to read a considerable chunk of John 4, although not quite yet, because in order to get there, uh, I've got to do a couple map quest windows for you. The first one's going to be like the United States, and that's, uh, I want you to think with me a little bit about the nature of stories, and then we're going to focus in on like the, on California, and that's going to be a little bit about um, what's Jesus' basic project. What's he, you got a picture there too? Awesome. If you want to share, we can do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's your shoe. I keep looking at your shoe. I know, huh? See? I'm trying to find my pictures. I just had it in You know, the pressure is totally on you it right is, now. It is, it is. How do you find my <laughs> Okay, big picture, MapQuest, uh, the nature of story. I want, to, I want you to think of me about that. A little closer in, California. Um, what's Jesus' basic project? Uh, and we're, the reason we're gonna, I want to talk about that is uh, because theologians have only recently figured out that what Jesus does is every bit as important for understanding him and his sense of mission as what he says. That makes sense, doesn't it? And so a story is an account of his actions as much as his uh, verbal witness. So, what's Jesus' big project? What's he really trying to accomplish? And then even more narrowly, like Northern California, the Sacramento metro area, MapQuest window, uh, this is a story in John, so we need to understand a little bit of what John's all about. And then, finally, we're going to get to reading that story itself and thinking together about what it means. Does that make sense? Four, four MapQuest windows. First is story. We normally, um, even though we like stories, I like stories. My daughter's actually favorite story from childhood wasn't Cat in the Hat or One Fish, Two Fish. It was Brave Potatoes. And uh, you know how kids sometimes they, they pull out something from childhood because they want to feel, you know, I don't know, they, they want to feel that security they had as little kids. So about two weeks ago she pulled out Brave Potatoes, got the binky, and Hesty, her little, you know, little horse, and uh, sat on the couch with me and wanted me to read Brave Potatoes. It's the story of these, uh, these potatoes that, leave a, that lead a, uh, an egalitarian vegetable revolution against the evil chef Hackamup at uh, the Chowder Lounge. 
It's sort of a Marxist-Leninist vegetable story, you know? So we read that, and you know, I read it twice, and then we, then we watched um, Hungry Caterpillar, and it, you know, it, was, it was great. I had, a, I had an awful time. And we usually relegate stories uh, to the nurseries and uh, cribs of childhood. And we make a mistake when we do that, because they are not mere divertimenti. 1713, Joseph Addison's play, Cato, was performed for the first time on the London stage. It's the story of Cato, the Roman senator, an elder, an older contemporary of Julius Caesar, who became concerned about the overwhelming power, the trajectory of that power of Julius Caesar. He discerned in Caesar moral degeneracy. And by that, I don't mean uh, you know, some kind of sexual perversion, but the very heart, the center of of what historians of the time called the, the moral decay of the Roman Empire, the Roman state. And that is this, the desire to dominate others. And even more central, a belief that what really matters is what I want. Well, that's me. Last night I spoke here twice, you know, first service at five, had a meeting over at four, Drove to the Starbucks up here, ordered a latte. I'm the only, I'm the only person in the store, ordered a small latte, pretty simple. They, mech, they screw up the drink. How can you, you know, small latte, not, you know, half decaf caramel thing. Just, just small latte, screw up the drink. And I'm like, I'm like, been out of shape. I've only got 55 minutes to drive the two miles here. You know, clearly I've got important stuff going on. Wow, are you like me? Don't we have that? And Cato wrote, uh, 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 tried to alert the, his contemporaries to this danger. Here's somebody who will, who will rob us of our republic, who will deny human decency and human dignity and make himself dictator. This play by Joseph Addison was performed for the first time on the London stage in 1713. Within a generation, it had become wildly popular in the American colonies. It was George Washington's favorite play. The long winner at Valley Forge, he brought in a troop of players to perform that play to steal the resolve of his soldiers, to fix in them a sense of their purpose and their mission, that they are, they are committed, they were committed to a cause greater than themselves. Give me liberty or give me death. I regret that I have but one life to give for my country. These, the two most stirring slogans from the revolutionary period, they weren't invented by Patrick Henry or Nathan Hale. They were quotes from Addison's play. Story has the power to reach across the centuries and grab a hold of us and fix in us, anneal us to a cause that is greater than ourselves story. And so when we read the story of Jesus in John 4, um, let's allow ourselves to, to, to be soaked in it, to dive into it. It requires that we pay attention. You know, law codes are easy. Do this, don't do that. Stories require reflection. And a good part of the Old Testament is story. God says to Abram, uh, I want you to get up, leave the place where you're living, and go to a land where I'm going to show you, and I'm not telling you where it is. And Abram says, okay. What's the point of that story? Faith. Yeah, bingo. Faith. 
Next story. Uh, Abram and Sarai go to Egypt because they're running out of food where they are. And on the way there, Abram starts thinking about uh, his wife, Sarai, and says, you know, you're pretty good looking. I think when we get there, we should tell them that you're my sister instead of my wife. That way they won't kill me to get to you. And that's what happens. They tell a fabrication. She goes into Pharaoh's harem. Uh, God punishes Pharaoh for that. Pharaoh figures out what's going on, kicks them out, and, and they get all kinds of stuff. They're wealthier by far when they leave than when they got there. What's the point of that story? How about this? Uh, when you're in trouble, lie to protect yourself. Put those you love at risk and God will reward you. Let's all sing. Glory be to the Father. That's not this. Part of the point of that story, and you've got to think about it, is God doesn't vaporize us the first time we screw up. He continues to use us, to work with us. He even trusts us, even though there's not a whole lot of reason to do so. He has hope in you and me. So, story, function of story, a little more narrow. Uh, What's Jesus' project? What's he all about anyway? You know, when he arrives on the scene, he says, first thing he says is repent and believe the gospel uh, because the kingdom of God is here. It's It's right at the door. Kingdom of God. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's kingdom isn't a place. It's not a subtlety. It's not a country. It's not a state. God's kingdom is where His will is understood and done. That happens in heaven. May it spread over the earth. Hallowed be Your name. I prayed that prayer millions of times probably. Prayed it in seminary. I didn't have any clue what hallowed be your name meant. I didn't even bother thinking about it. If I had, I, I guess I would have thought it meant, I don't know, go do that hallow thing you do, God. And whatever it is, you got my permission. The background is Ezekiel 36. You may, if you have your Bible, you may want to turn to that. Ezekiel 36. Verse 20, and this is the background of Jesus' prayer. Verse 20, God says, okay, I'm going to have to hallow my own name. Because you, my people, have allowed my name to be profaned. Here's the basic idea. God is counting on his people accurately to depict what he's like. How else is the rest of the world going to figure out what God's like? Except by looking at his people. And God says, you, my people, have been living in a way that's so, my grandpa used to say, cattywampus, so out of whack from who I really am, that people have drawn incorrect conclusions. And it ain't their fault. You're by billboard. You're the, one, you're the ones they're looking at. And so God says a little later on in Ezekiel 36, you know what? I'm going to have to hallow my own name. My name that you've allowed to be profaned among the nations. And then he says, more than that, I've got to fix the basic problem. I've got to take that heart of stone that's in you. Nancy, you've got one. So do I. I'm the guy at Starbucks. All ticked off about my tall latte. 
We all got them. I got to take that heart of stone out of you and put in a heart of flesh. Because here's the basic idea. And then put my Holy Spirit in you, God says in Ezekiel 36. Because here's the basic idea. Um, the law that God gives is good. The law is good. It's accurate. It's trustworthy. But it is external to us. I once heard law defined this way by a, a law professor at Yale University. Law makes you do what you don't want to do and keeps you from doing what you want to do. Pretty simple. And he said that, and immediately I said, yep, that's right. Because once the Nevada State Highway Patrol told me that lesson. <laughs> Two in the morning, the Nevada State Highway Patrolman said to me, Mr. Nystrom, you cannot drive 100 miles an hour across Nevada. I wanted to. But he wasn't going to let me. Law compels behavior. It cannot change your desire. And so I need to take that heart of stone and to put in you a heart of flesh and put my very spirit in you so that, so that it will be understood by you. That's why Jesus says, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends because you understand. Does that make sense? So big picture story, a little bit narrower map quest view. What's Jesus' enterprise? It is to solve, to fix the basic brokenness of the human heart so that we can live once more annealed to God and His purposes. Paul says without Christ we can't. We're, we're slaves to sin. We have no option. It's only with Christ that we can live into what God desires for us. Okay, closer in. Closer in, look. Um, John's Gospel. Is this, is it, you guys following this okay still? That was believable. Thanks. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> my, da my daughter, who's 10, uh, about a year ago, she, um, uh, we were watching Disney, I think, and during a commercial, she just looked at me and all of a sudden got kind of serious and said, okay, let me get this straight. People actually come to hear you talk. <laughs> and nobody makes them. So, yeah, okay. So I'm just, I'm just, I'm hoping you're still with me, okay? You're still with me? Okay. Um, John's is the most complex document, theologically complex document in the, in the whole Bible. That's pretty daunting. The most complex theological document in the Bible is the Gospel of John. So I'm going to try to give you just one window, one sort of x-ray picture down to its heart uh, for the next about ten minutes. Okay? Chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, go to John chapter 1, verses 29 through 32. Now, in the, in the synoptics in Matthew and Luke, uh, when the baptism of Jesus is described, we actually get the account of that baptism, as if we're right there. In John's Gospel, that's not what happens. In John's Gospel, what we have is John the Baptist, at a later point, recounting. Here's what I remembered happened when I baptized Jesus. And he says, if you look there, I think it's verse 32. I saw, is that verse 32? I saw the heavens open, mm -hmm. and the Spirit of God descend on him like a dove, and it remained on him. Anybody have anything else besides remain? Rested. Anything else? Descended, but it descends and then it, what does it do when it descends? It rests, it remains. Anything else? 
abode. Yeah. Yeah, this, the, the word here is one of the most flexible in the Greek lexicon. Uh, as many as 12 different English words are, are, are used at various times to translate it, to render it from Greek and English. Abide, stay, remain, dwell, continue. Um, it's the same word in John chapter 15 when Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Remain in me and I in you. Now that's a very different image than just like sat down next to me. I've had people sit down next to me on, on public transit in Chicago, and I wasn't really totally engaged with them. <laughs> and, not, and they weren't with me either, you know. So that's not it. it it's, it's that image of the vine, because there's a place where the vine stops and the branch starts, and you can't tell which one it is, right? And those two are linked. And there's stuff going back and forth, nutrition and energy and vitality going back and forth. So what the gospel is saying here is that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is the one that, that dwells within Jesus in, in, a, in a way of complete uh, interaction. Not falling on like Elijah in the Old Testament, where he's Mr. Tough Guy on Mount Carmel, but the next day he's running scared. Not imperfectly like that. John chapter 5, verse 19. John chapter 5, he heals the man by the pool. He's been uh, lame for 38 years. Does it on a Sunday. I'm on a Sabbath. And that uh, bends, the, bends out of shape the religious leaders. They ask him, Why do you, by what authority do you do this? Now, in the, in the synoptics, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he answers the, that question by giving sort of escape clauses. Well, when David was king, remember, he and his, he and his uh, followers ate the bread of the presence, etc., etc. Here, Jesus makes a much more substantial claim. I do only what I see the Father doing. What? I am claiming that, Jesus says, that right now, while I'm here on earth with you, I have perfect vision of God in heaven. And then it goes on to say, and everything the Father does, that the Son does. So it's not like I only see like every 15th thing God does. It's continual. I know what God is thinking and doing all the time. Chapter uh, 5, verse 30. As I hear, present tense, I judge. John chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up in the midst of the temple and said, cried in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. For as the scripture says, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. And then John, the gospel writer, says this he said about the spirit, which had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Glorified in John's gospel uh, refers to the crucifixion and resurrection. But here's the basic point. The spirit is going to be given. That's that. That's the fulfillment of Ezekiel 36. Here's where it happens, where God takes that heart of stone out of us and places within us a heart of flesh and grants to us the ability to, to welcome the spirit of the living God within. And when that happens, you know what? That's why Jesus can say, I no longer call you servants, but friends, because we have the spirit. If we're believers, we have the spirit of the living God within us. That's pretty awesome. Don't you think? Chapter 14. Verse 17, Jesus says, okay, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to leave you now, but uh, don't be upset. I'm going to send another counselor, the paraclete, even the spirit of truth. And then he says, verse 17, about the spirit of truth, and you know him because he is with you, present tense, right now he's with you. 
and future tense will be in you. So when that spirit comes to dwell in you, you'll say, wow, I recognize that as the same spirit that was in Jesus. So that's the narrower, now a little more, a little more close in, MapQuest view. This is the, is in short order, the theology of John's gospel. This is God's plan to solve the problem of human brokenness. And it, it ain't just the Bible that says we're broken. A social critic said, in recent years, wealth has made us greedy. Now, that's an interesting idea. Because one sort of school of thought geopolitically is the reason there's conflict worldwide is because there are some people who don't have enough and other people got way too much. And if you just give people enough and a little bit more, then then there won't be conflict anymore because people will be satisfied. But this critic says, no, that's a bunch of baloney. Here's the way we really are. The more we have, the more we want. We are insatiably selfish. Are you? I am. I am. I sense it every day. In recent years, wealth has made us greedy, and self-indulgence has led us through every form of sensual excess to be chasing after our own deaths. And we know it's killing us, but we don't have the strength to stop. That was the Roman historian Livy writing 20 years before Jesus was born. Sounds like today, doesn't it? The world recognizes when it stops to consider, to look deep inside, that we are broken. And God's plan for fixing that, that, that brokenness of spirit, that wounded human heart, is to send the spirit of the living God through what Christ has accomplished. Okay, now, closest in, the story itself. It's a long story. I'm going to read it. You might, whatever works best for you. Maybe it's best to just close your eyes and imagine yourself there. Maybe it's best to read it in your Bible along with me. Whatever works best for you. John chapter 4. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, we had to go through Samaria. So we came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Near the plot of ground, Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and this well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw. He told her, Go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. Fact is, you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way to Warden. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say, Four months more and then the harvest, I tell you. Open your eyes and look at the fields, for they are ripe with harvest. What do you see? This is all I got, so I hope you're going to help me out here. <laughs> what do you see? Observations? Comments? I'm sorry? I didn't hear. You've got to be salt and light, even though those terms aren't, aren't there, but how do you see that? Where do you see that in the text? Well, you said that I could give you living water, you know, and, and we've got to do that to show God's love and ah, kindness. Okay, we, 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 here's, the, here's the chance Christ is offering. I'm sorry. Christ is offering us living water. So that then, if it's living, it's going to bubble up out of us, I'm, I'm thinking you're saying, and, and flow out. Bingo. That's right. What else do you notice? Yeah, he bra he's breaking all kinds of boundaries. You know, the text says they're surprised to see him talking to a woman. Well, the Greek word uh, is a form of thaumadza, which is the word that, that is used when he stills the storm. You try that sometime. You know, he's got the power to tell the storm to stop. And his disciples are actually astonished and afraid. That's the same term. That he is speaking to a woman in public. That was, you just didn't do that. A woman didn't speak in public to someone who wasn't a part of her family or what we would call a nuclear family, number one. And also she's a Samaritan woman. 
Right? We get that in the text. Uh, Jews don't have dealings with Samaritans. So maybe you're wondering what, what are they doing in the town to buy food? It's a technical term don't, don't associate with, meaning they won't use utensils together with. They won't eat with Samaritans. Jews consider Samaritans unclean, had some level of uncleanness. And Jewish, Jews considered Samaritan women perpetual sources of uncleanness. In Judaism, there's a, whole pure, there's a whole purity system. Certain things make you unclean, blood, sexual fluids, a dead body, leprosy. You touch them, you're unclean for, you touch them, you're unclean for a week. That's why in the Good Samaritan parable, they, they, see, they see a guy who's left for dead. They're not sure if he's moving or not, so they think he might be. So they don't just walk by, they actually make a big circle around them. Because if your shadow falls across a dead body, you're unclean for a day. So, she knows... And the rabbi said Jew, uh, Samaritan women are considered menstruants from the cradle. From birth, little girls, women who are Samaritans, are perpetual sources of uncleanness. They're like walking nuclear accidents. And wow, he doesn't just, he doesn't just disregard that. He has this, he, he, he's talking with her, he's, he, he's having a conversation with her. Yeah, he breaks that boundary seriously. What else do you see? Pardon? He knows her intimacy. Yeah, he knows. He's got he's got a divine insight, supernatural insight. Somebody over here. He reveals himself to her. Yeah, do you see that? Bingo, exactly. The, he he tells her, the first one he says, that, that's me. I'm Messiah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, later on, Peter, you remember like in Galatians 2, there's this account of, of Peter kind of waffling on, the, on this issue of Jews and Gentiles. And right here, here's Jesus modeling it. So here's that power of story again. And, and you've got to think through those actions. Okay, uh, let, me, let me try to unpack uh, some of the lessons that I see here. Number one, he had to go through Samaria. No, no, he didn't. Jews went from Judea to Galilee all the time without going through Samaria. Samaria was between them geographically, and Jews would just cross the Jordan, go north, and then cross back over. So to say he had to go through Samaria, it's not a geographical necessity. It is a spiritual necessity. Same language as in John 3, where he says the Son of Man must be lifted up. It's the prompting of the Spirit that directs him. So, lesson one, A and B, maybe. Number one, A, learn to listen. If we are believers and the Spirit of the living God lives in us, then we don't need to pray, God, come. We should be praying, Lord, help me get ears to hear and eyes to see. Is it not a tragedy that the Spirit of the living God dwells in us and I go too fast and pay so little attention? Are you like me? The great spiritual writers from antiquity to today, Brother Lawrence, Thomas Merton, Dallas Willard, they all say you have to make time and space in your life. A systematic 
progressive attempt to carve out some time and space to say, Lord, what are you trying to say? Lord, lead me. You're here within speaking. Help me hear. But I'm pretty stupid about that kind of thing. When my wife and I were engaged, actually we weren't quite engaged yet. It was Christmas time. We were kissing on the front stoop of her parents' house. We'd only been going out for like three months. I remember the kissing part real well. Even right now, I'm remembering that real well. And she looked up at me and said, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. Here's what I came up with. Uh, I like you too. I mean, the signs were all there. The signs were right in front of me. But I wasn't paying attention. I didn't have the eyes to see. The Spirit of the living God dwells within you if you come to faith in Christ. St. Teresa said, real maturity in the spiritual life is when you start to realize that you should want what God wants to form in you instead of what you want God to form in you. Learn to listen. And when that Spirit speaks, take a godly risk. Lesson number two. This woman. This woman. She knows what Jews think, Jewish men think of Samaritan women. And as she's walking out to that well, and she sees this Jewish guy out there, she can tell by the dress, what do you think she's thinking? And she's had five husbands. Now, it's typical to call her a promiscuous woman. We don't really know that. You know, the text doesn't say she's lived with six guys in a row, unmarried. She's at least tried to get married five times. We can say for sure that she's been knocked around by life a great deal. Have you been knocked around by life? Imagine how crushed her spirit is. What she's expecting to receive from a Jewish man waiting there. And instead, she gets a conversation. This is the longest theological conversation Jesus has with anybody. Think about that. The longest theological conversation Jesus has with anybody. He treats her with dignity and respect. He actually engages her in conversation. He seems to have no concern with those traditional laws of separation. No matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, you, like this woman, are a treasure in the eyes of God. No matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, the God of the universe looks at you and says, I have made you. I will carry you. And I will sustain you. And I will rescue you. You are worth everything I possess. And I will sacrifice everything to draw you home. Some of you don't believe that. 
Because in your rearview mirror, there's stuff that you, you, part of you says, that cannot be forgiven. The truth of the matter is, God looks at you and says, you are my treasure, just like this woman. I want you to look around. Look at people next to you. Look at people behind you. Come on. You're not. You're looking at me still. Look around. Every set of eyes, every person, every face your eyes are lighted on, God says the same thing about them. We are a company of the wounded whom God sends into the world as his agents of compassion and grace. Let's remember that. Third lesson. Can I have a drink of water? Now, that, she's flummoxed at first because he doesn't have his own bucket. See, if he had his own bucket, then she could tie her rope and around, the, around the loop and never actually touch his utensil. But she knows that he doesn't have a bucket. She'd have to drink out of her bucket, which would mean, she knows that, that would mean for most Jewish men they'd be unclean. But Jesus says, I, I, I want something from you. I'm going to put myself in your debt. Okay, I was introduced as the Vice President for Academic Affairs at William Jessup University. And I was introduced as Dave Nystrom, I think, right? You know what they said? Dave Nystrom? Yeah. Actually, I'm the uh, Reverend Dr. Professor Nystrom. And, uh, you know, I, I do have a Ph.D. in uh, Roman social history, New Testament theology, which means I'm a lot of fun. <laughs> and, um, you know, when, when I was uh, uh, in graduate school and writing my dissertation, my wife and I were in a couple's Bible study. And when you're in graduate school writing your dissertation on a New Testament topic and you're in a couple's Bible study, you become answer boy for the Bible study. <laughs> and I like being answer boy. It met all kinds of petty insecurities that are, are no longer a problem for me. One person got that slight joke. And uh, one night there was a new couple that came to the Bible study, Eric and Teresa Echegaray. They said, well, and Teresa said, yeah, you know, I grew up going to church, but I really stopped when I was in, you know, first grade and don't remember much. And Eric, new Christian, don't know, don't know anything. And so I'm thinking, great, no threat to answer, boy. And the uh, first question came along and they all looked at me, Dave. You know, and so I took a breath to start to answer. And before I, get, before I could start answering, Teresa starts talking. And I think uh, somebody better explain the rules of the Bible study. <laughs> Make this really clear. And, uh, you know, 10 seconds into it, I'm thinking, oh, that's pretty good. And then 20 seconds in, I'm thinking, uh, I need a pen. It's that good. I want to write this down. Here's what I learned. God had given her a gift of insight into Scripture that goes beyond people with three PhDs. And if I'm only concerned with listening to people who've got letters after their name, then I'm an idiot. I'm a total idiot. 
Because God has has fashioned the body of Christ in such a way that we actually need each other. Not condescend to let Teresa answer every once in a while so she feels better about herself. But I actually need what she has to say and the insight she brings. Because I am broken and sick in ways I know and ways I don't. And the, the way God ordains it, has organized it, is the healing touch He has for me will be granted to me through the hands of someone who probably, by human sight, I would think is the least likely. It's if we have an understanding of what the cross of Christ means the greatest must be the least and the servant of all. It's not about status or power or money or anything else. We've got to have eyes to see one another the way Jesus does. Because if I am not willing to be open to all of my sisters and brothers, then I'm going to miss the healing that God has for me. Next lesson. She goes into town, Sychar, and says something and gets the whole town to run out and try to find Jesus. What does she say? That's pretty effective evangelism. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. You don't have to look too far in the rearview mirror of my life before we'll come across something that I really don't want you to know about. How about you? She turns this over for God's use. That's, that's the business God's in. Taking what we screw up and turn it into something resplendent. First Samuel 8, the people ask for a king, that's a sin, but it is out of the line of kingship that God's Messiah issues forth. I'm not saying, you know, put it on Facebook, but there are times when your brokenness and the way God has healed you could be the story, the balm, that someone else needs. Be willing, when it's appropriate, to let God use the brokenness in your rearview mirror. Finally, if you're one of those disciples, there with Jesus that day, you're already pretty confused, and then he says, lift up your eyes, for the fields are right with harvest. If you actually lift up your eyes, what do you see? What do you see? It's right there in the text. People. And not just any people. You see Samaritans. You're a Jewish disciple of Jesus. You're walking through Samaria, which has got to have you pretty freaked out all by itself. 
He's talking to this Samaritan woman. That's, that's, that's got you over the edge. And then you get the clue that the harvest he's talking about, which you're supposed to open your eyes, is in this case a Samaritan harvest. Who'd have thunk that? Right outside these walls is a harvest that God has for you and for me. Will we see it? 20 years ago, I was a pastor in, in Davis. <clears throat> and uh, one day there was a new couple came to the church, Gary and Lee. And they just moved from New Hampshire. And Gary was wearing, you know, it's Davis. So I didn't think it was all that weird. Davis has got some weird stuff going on there. And, but anyway, Gary's wearing like really nice hiking boots and a parka. So I just noticed that. Real nice parka. High quality. And, uh, but it was first day, so we invited him over to our house for, uh, for, you know, lunch after the service. And after lunch, we're all, Gary and I are out in the garage. I don't know why men go out in the garage. Some sort of thing going on out there. And, and, uh, and I've, I had uh, topographical maps on the wall, so I used to lead backpacking and mountaineering trips in California, um, years ago. And, and, uh, Gary said, oh, what are those? And so I immediately assumed the posture of a patronizing teacher. Oh, those. Those are topographical maps. See the little lines? Closer together means steep. Farther apart means flat. And uh, Gary said, oh. So next week, they invited us to their house after church. And I opened the door, and there on the wall right opposite from the front door is this photograph of a mountain scene, pretty awesome mountain scene. And I'm drawn to it, and I walk up to it, and Gary is now standing next to me smiling a little bit. And he says, uh, uh, do you know where that is? I said, yeah, that's the Cirque of the Unclimbables in the Northwest Territories of Canada. He said, yes, that's right. I said, boy, that's hard to get there. I've seen photographs, but never this one. Never seen this published anywhere. He said, oh, yeah, that's right. You see, I took it. <laughs> Gary, it turns out, um, used to be paid by the U.S. government to be the leader of their emergency strike rescue force on Mount McKinley, the most dangerous big mountain in the world. The record for a solo assault, 7,000 feet to the top 21 and back, was 30 hours. Gary did it in 18 and a half. He is a stud. The parka with no markings on it? Yeah, it was North Face. They send their prototypes to Gary to test them out. And I'm talking to him about topographical maps. Now, I saw the signs. I saw it was high quality, a high quality parka. I saw the really nice boots, but I paid them no mind. May it be true of us this week that we live into just a little bit more what it means to become alert and alive to the God around us and in us, to embrace His purpose, to let it soak through us so we understand with our hearts and live out with our hands the truth of the Gospel. Father God,
But thank you for this day. Thank you for the fact that this word, your word, conveys words of life. May those words and may this story, may they stick in our minds so that we reflect on them and our minds can be transformed by them in your spirit. May they find a ready home, a lodging place in our hearts so that we are changed. May those we meet sense in the timber and the tone of our voices and the touch of our hands. The very presence of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said.